What are the papal limits on the liturgy? Do popes have the authority to change the Mass, and to what extent can popes modify the liturgy? It's a big question today, and I'm with one of the most eminent theologians, an exorcist, a Catholic priest. You all know him. This is Father Chad Ripperger. Uh, he is a friend, and he's someone that I look to when I have questions, and this is certainly a question that we've all had. The papal limits or the limits of papal authority over the liturgy. Father Ripperger, how are you? I'm not doing too badly. Good. Thanks for having me on again. Good. Before we get into liturgy and popes and all that, why do you love being a Catholic? Uh, I think it's it can be boiled down to two things. It's the beauty of the coherence of all the truths of the church's teaching that uh, have been passed on us through the tradition. So if you just look at the tradition, you see how beautiful the whole system fits together. And uh, and then on the other side of it is, too, is just my own personal experience of living that life does make you happier than when you don't. So it's kind of like G.K. Chesterton said, if the Catholic religion wasn't true, we should be making it up because it's so beautiful. You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, Jordan <laughs> Peterson recently, or not recently, but in the last couple of years said that Catholics are the sanest people on earth. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm sure you remember this. I'm sure you're fully aware of this, Taylor, but maybe some of your viewers aren't. But that um, they used to say that in the uh, um, before the uh, before Vatican II, not necessarily as a result of Vatican II, but uh, before Vatican II, there were less Catholics in mental institutions than any other denomination. And all the psychologists uh, mm. and people who had studied said it's because of confession. But I think that there's a whole bunch of there's a whole series of reasons. But what's interesting is I, I, this I haven't been able to track down, but they say after Vatican II, there's more Catholics in mental institutions than in the denomination. And I'm wondering if that isn't true because they're getting a sense of, you know, this is sinful and this is you're guilty if you do this. And yet they're not getting into confession or not leaving lives according to it, et cetera. But anyway, I do. Yeah, I think he's I think he's right. I think it's also the one religion that you can live and be the sanest. Yeah. Well, because we're tapped into reality. Exactly. It's a Thomistic exactly, yeah. understanding of the world. Yeah, and if you actually look at Revelation, all Revelation is is a re, is showing to us this is reality. This is who God is. This is our relationship. This is what He's doing. Yeah. So, well, good. Well, speaking of reality, all grace flows from the altar, and ever since 1969, I guess you could go earlier than that, but there's been this debate yeah. on what is the Roman rite. Uh, as we know, Pope Paul VI changed all seven sacraments, the liturgy of all seven sacraments, and um, right. you know, maybe we can get in that today. But I was—I read your book, "The Limits of Papal Authority Over the Liturgy." It's absolutely fantastic. Everybody watching today, all thousands of you, you should go buy this book, <laughs> and the link is in below. Um, there is—it's already sold out, right, Father? Sold out. Yeah. So the first run, the first run, once we made it um, available to the public, because you were one of those people that I sent to because I wanted your opinion on uh, on it, um, which uh, you can kind of give me more of what, what you think there is. Uh, and, and it's kind of in my explanation, which we can talk a little bit about later, why the book takes a particular form that it does, because it's not probably what most people are going to think. They think it's just going to be me going after the popes and saying you can't do this and that. And that's not exactly what the uh, what the story is. It's actually, um, uh, well, we, we can get into that uh, in just a bit. But what, um, So I, I gave it to certain clergy and certain academics like yourself to see what's your take on it? Um, are there problems in the argumentation? Um, and uh, obviously, I warned them that this is just a beginning of the discussion. It's I don't consider this thing exhaustive by any stretch. It's just trying to lay out the principles behind when, when the Pope can and cannot change the liturgy, when he can and cannot suppress a right, etc. I wanted to make sure that those principles were in place because we can all we can talk about all the conclusions until the cows come home. But the, but none of that means anything if we don't know the principles. And so I uh, when I um, I kept hearing people like Cardinal Burke and Athanasius Sider saying, well, the Pope doesn't have the authority to suppress the old right. And I'm like, well, I agree with them, but I don't know the principles behind that. And none of them were talking about the principles behind it. And so that's why I decided to write the book is to 
do the uh, the research, do a deep dive into what the popes, what the saints, what the councils themselves have said about what the pope can and cannot do in relationship to the changes of the liturgy, etc., just so that I have it clear in my own mind. Um, and then that's basically the product of this book. So when we first gave it to the academics and to the clergy, um, I got very little feedback except for here and there because... Um, again, I wasn't trying to be too extensive with the book. I was just having a very narrow focus on this is what um, I think that uh, needs to be discussed first before anything else can. Um, I didn't get much back. And so, uh, and also all of them said that in reading the book, they didn't think that there was anything in it that was too, was bombastic or ridiculous and that I could be canceled for, although you can be canceled just for being Catholic, of course. Um, but uh, so I decided, well, I'll make it public. From the time we made it public, we sold out the first run within uh, 48 hours. It was not something, we didn't have a large run. And so then I went to uh, the printing company. This is this is only something that an exorcist would probably experience, although you might have experienced the same kind of stuff too. Uh, I went back to the printing company and I said, I need X thousands of copies. They come back and said, we don't even have a record of you ever doing business with us. So literally my account, the book, all the all the layout, which you know, as you know, you have to do on the right. on their websites and all that, gone, gone. completely gone. So they, they we go back and forth, and they said, "Do you have the ISBN number?" Because we don't even have a record. So I gave them the ISBN number, and then they're like, "Okay, that ISBN shows that we printed this book, but it's nowhere on our computers." So then they said, "Well, we got to kick this up." And I said, "Well, <laughs> in the meantime, I can't wait for this because we just got inundated with back orders." So. Um, yeah. As I mentioned to you before that we started, um, they can still order it through us. They just have to be patient because we do have it on order. We should, uh, we should receive about um, uh, about three thousand copies of the book within about the next two to three weeks. So we should get those. Um, uh, they're coming in slowly um, because. Even the printers are a little bit behind the pile in this thing. They didn't. We none of us expected it to sell. Although I should have known better that someone like me putting out a book that says, "Hey, the Pope can't do this, that, or the other thing," people are going to be all over it. Yeah, but oh, I, just, uh, I know you. You said three thousand. You're printing. You need to call them up after the show, and you need to say ten thousand because this audience is going to yeah, buy I, at least three or five thousand. Yeah, my exactly. My sister who does the um, does the the uh, she runs the corporation side because priests aren't supposed to be involved in business, right? So I gave it to my sister and said, here, you deal with it. Yep. And I was talking to her about it, and she said, yeah, yeah, we probably should. So uh, we've been, um, and that's what I'll do. I'll just go back to the printers and just, and actually it's one of those books that long-term is going to sell that many anyway, even if it doesn't happen immediately. It's just going to be one of those books that for a while is going to be selling for a while, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the link is below, folks. You can get a copy of the book. It will take a two weeks or so to get it. So if you order it in the link below, just be patient. It's an excellent book. I've read it all the way through. My only complaint is I felt as just as you were getting going towards the end, it ended. I needed more, but it's already a pretty yeah, comprehensive well, that, book as it stands. <laughs> that was somewhat by design. And, and, and as you know, because I was trying to deal with just the principles I didn't want to get into a lot of the conclusions. Now, there are a few conclusions which I do draw in, and that's, as you mentioned, right towards the end, I started getting into a few of the conclusions that can be drawn from it, but I don't want to get, I didn't, I, this is what I didn't want to happen. I didn't want those who would read the book who are attached to the, the newer rights to uh, just dismiss the book because of um oh well he's just a traditionalist he's just he just doesn't like the new mass etc i just wanted to lay the principles down so all of us can begin discussing that and then from there we can draw the conclusions because um at, then that way if we all agree on the principles well then the conclusions are just a matter of logic or or induction and i just wanted to make sure that that was all in place beforehand so the book is uh it's still over 200 pages long and i'm just dealing with these are just the areas where historically um well just doctrinally but also historically and also what the popes have said you can and cannot you can and cannot do just to lay it out clear so that people don't get the idea this is just my own opinion on the matter there are objective principles that govern what the pope can and cannot do yeah okay so let's kick it off here you have one extreme that says the pope right. has the keys to the kingdom he can 
do anything he wants with the right. He can say the right is opening up with a poem by Martin Luther King Jr. in perpetuity. And he can say, <laughs> you know, we're going to then watch uh, or we're then going to read, you know, a lesson from what, whatever, I mean, and just make something, whatever he says, he's got the keys. That's what he can do to the other far extreme, which would maybe view the liturgy, the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass as sort of like a a codified download word for word that came down from heaven and it cannot ever be touched, added to, modified. Those are the two extremes. Your book right. tries to show that there is an apostolic template pattern that is right. inviolable. You cannot... There are certain things that you cannot adjust, touch, remove, et cetera. So did I, did I get that right. right? And then can you expand on what is that apostolic template? Yes. Uh, yeah, you got it just exactly right. Actually, expressed it better than I did. Maybe I should have you write my books. Well, I didn't <laughs> read the book. I just stole it from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, okay, yeah, first on the one extreme, those who say he can do whatever he pleases, that's actually not what the church herself says. The Council of Trent says that he is, um, that the Pope can make changes um, and the Latin is salve illorum substantia, save the substance of the sacraments. So he can't change the substance of them. However, as we begin to see, there were certain other aspects where, um, and this is something that undergirds quo primum, especially, which we can get into a little bit later, is that um, there were certain things that were inaugurated by the apostles, and that from the, so if it was of divine tradition, so for example, the Pope, because of divine, um, divine positive law, he does not have the authority to change the words of consecration, for example, to something other than what they actually uh, were at the, you know, as, as Christ initiated them. I do get into the whole question of the Mysterium Fide, but that's just another, uh, the point is, is those things that are uh, part of the essence of the sacraments, he cannot change them. So there's so if it's divine uh, uh, tradition or if it's something that Christ told the apostles. So in the book, I make the observation that a few of the fathers say that it was actually uh, very early fathers say that it was actually Christ who commanded the apostles to put the pre put a preface into the rite of mass, and so that means that it would not be within the authority of the Pope to promulgate a rite that didn't have a proper preface, for example. Um, and then there's also things that started from the apostles themselves. So the history is from that point on, the tradition of the church always was that if it came from basically, because even the divine, um, uh, those things which are divine tradition, all those come via the apostles. That means if it came through the apostles in some manner, regardless of its source or how it was engendered, but if it came through the apostles, it was considered to be outside the authority of the Holy Father to change. Now, this basically means that, um, and this is something I kind of start drawing out in the book, that if you actually read the Fathers of the Church and you actually start taking a closer look at it, this thing, it didn't come out fully baked like we have in the Trident and right, right now in 1962. But the essential structure and many of the elements were already in place already they were in place and so the uh it it's true that it did undergo a certain amount of development but by the time you get to gregor the great there is a clear apostolic lineage that can be demonstrated in relationship to the roman rite and so there was a recognition that uh, and this is actually something which uh, gregor great um himself recognized that the codification that he did was merely a codification of that right that had organically developed from the time of the apostles. And that organic development was not as extensive. That's one of the things I began to realize in the research, because a lot of the modernists make it out like, oh, well, well there was this, that, that Christ just told the apostles just a few things, and then they basically just made it up as they went along. And that's actually not the case, that it was actually somewhat fairly baked coming out of somewhat, uh, not perfectly finished, of course, because there is obviously more additions that are made. But those elements that came from the apostles, and this is the main thing I show in the book, that apostolic lineage, so if you're looking at the uh, traditional Latin mass, 
all the way through Pius the back to Pius V and then back to Gregory the Great and to there. There is an uninterrupted un apostolic lineage. And those elements that are part of that lineage, um, the entire tradition considered it to be the fact that the Pope could not change those. He did not have the authority to change those. He did have authority over them, but it was the, the authority to preserve them, not to change them or make determinations. Now, certain things, obviously, in relationship to the um, the uh, the prefaces, there can be, there has to be a preface, but the Pope can make adjustments to the preface or even add prefaces, and because that's historically that we saw, but even those have to have certain elements that go back to the apostles. So, and then there's the opposite extreme, which, you know, this thing is monolithic and never change whatsoever. That just flies in the face of the actual historical fact that these things, even though there were elements that were consistent and uh, the church always preserved those elements from the apostolicity, never the fact, nevertheless, it did actually undergo some developments throughout the course of history um, to what we have today. Yeah, so let's say, for example, well, before you move on on that, the Eastern Rites, that's something you capture in your book, the Roman Rite, the Eastern Rites, they all have the exact same apostolic pattern and template. Yes, there's maybe some different that's prayers correct. or some different emphasis, but when you put them side by side, if you put them in like an Excel sheet and you put all the principal parts together, the mapping is identical. Why? Because they all come from the apostles. Exactly. And it's uh, that they come from the apostles first. Christ himself, um, he, you know, set certain things in stone by divine tradition. Then he told them these are certain things that were supposed to be in the tradition and they're in the mass. And then the apostles themselves might have added certain things. But in point in fact, those things would have been in perfect congruity and they all tended to do the same things. This is one of the reasons why you'll and this is why it actually even says that if you see something that's common to all of the rites, then it's de facto to be presumed it's of apostolic lineage. And part of that has to do with the fact, as you know, that Christ, um, that fathers say, uh, there's a few fathers that say that not all of the apostles initiated rites, that Christ gave the command to only certain apostles, just as there were certain um, uh, writers of the Gospels, right? And not all the apostles wrote Gospels. So in a very similar fashion, there were only certain apostles that initiated the rites, and that even some of the rites that occur later um, never left. Those were actually taken from the, the those that had apostolic lineage. So that's the commonality that you see is the fact that they all had these same elements in common. So that would be Peter for the Roman rite. James That's for right. the Jerusalem right, uh, Thomas right. for what we know as like the Syro Malabar Mal or, Malabar right. Know, That's um, right. Who would who be other apostles there? Uh, don't quote me on this, but I keep, yeah. for some reason or another, every time I keep remembering who wrote it, it's Andrew had some. Andrew, there was something. Yeah. Andrew had something. Yeah. So it was one of the. It's what those. becomes the Byzantine right, probably. Probably, yeah. 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 So, uh, in fact, the Byzantine rite, as I mentioned, it was based on these. So if you look at the Byzantine rite, it has all those elements that we just got done that um, that all the that were common to all of the other rites. Yeah, it's surprising. I'll talk to people who are Byzantine and they're, you know, they'll talk about, oh, the Novus Ordo Mass, you know, Byzantine's better or whatever. But then they'll go to like a pontifical high traditional Latin Mass and like it's so Byzantine. Mm -hmm. It's like. Well, it's so apostolic. That's that's what you're like, thinking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You're seeing the com you're seeing the right. common elements. You know. Yeah. It's 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 all beef, so to speak. It's just some have a little bit more spice than others, type of thing. Sure. And in sure. different ways. And I think that's one of the things too is about the uh, the, the Eastern rites. Um, they too contrast them, trace themselves back to an apostle. And as the as the more research has been done, and I think um, I'm open to correction, but Kasim Folsom had done a lot of work, but there was a number of guys that are doing the research and they're showing more and more clearly that the support for this actually coming from St. Peter's South is pretty clear, right? So it's true that it did go through some development, but um, the fact that uh, the, the general consensus is that the offertory, the canon, and the communion, at least in its substance, probably came from Peter. They have, it's not 100%. Whereas the other ones can trace themselves back pretty clearly. But I think as the time goes on, and this is something that I've always 
noticed, and you, 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 I'm sure you've mentioned this, the more you hear the modernists say, well, you can't prove that in the tradition, just give it time. <laughs> right. it, and you find out, yeah, it's in the tradition. The tradition has always held this. This is where it is. It's right here. It's just that a lot of times people are ignorant or they just ignore or they haven't just, we just haven't plumbed the depths of the tradition as deeply as I think that we're capable of. Yeah. Yeah, you know, with with Jungmann and other liturgists in the liturgical movement moving up into what Bugnini starts to do in the 1950s and then has the, you know, entire coup, I would call it, by the 1960s, 70s, Jungmann and others are kind of on this opinion that the early liturgy was communal, it was sort of uh, informal, and then over time, right. thanks to Constantine and Charlemagne, imperial court structure was infused into the right. And if we could only go back and we could peel back the layers of Charlemagne's, you know, Gallican, Frankish right. additions, and then we go and we peel back the imperial uh, Constantinian levels, we're going to get to the pure right and what we saw as as more as you yeah. say more and more time goes by what we saw is it's just really hippies adding what they want to be in the mass or what they think early yes. christianity would look like when in reality you know we're seeing ambrose citing the roman canon word for word as what we have in the 1962 missile exactly exactly or, or they even said, you know, that the, or, and even when they were talking about how the second Eucharistic prayer, which now we know, of course, isn't the case, obviously, was the, it was basically the canon of Hippolytus. The first time I read the canon of Hippolytus, I'm like, well, this is almost exactly to what we have in the Roman rite. It, it, I don't know where they got that from. But, um, uh, but you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I, and this is the, I think the real difficulty is, this area of the liturgy, because the Exodus texts are fairly few, nevertheless, what we do see in them do provide a uh, a skeleton to what we're seeing the fathers of the church say were actually, was actually there. So the more we plumb the depths of what the fathers actually say was present there, it was far more structured than uh than they ever let on you know and, and so uh, and coming um from the apostles part of it also i think had to do with um just the mindset from the beginning which and i think this is a case of you know freud was not entirely wrong he was wrong about most stuff but there is kind of a projection that people do right so you had these hippies projecting back onto that time frame something which oh it was just this like you said informally people kind of did what they wanted they kind of made stuff up when in point in fact at that time when it came from the apostles it would have been considered absolutely foreign to their mindset to deviate from anything they didn't have the authority to deviate from or make any changes. And that, uh, the fact that the apostles had inaugurated it, and the fact that the, all these different rites all had those same things in common, was an indicator that no, they were bound, there was a recognition, they were bound in the liturgy to certain elements in the liturgy, and there was, to deviate from that was would have been considered uh, completely unacceptable. Yes, and another argument is, okay, well, you think all of these elements in the Roman Rite are from Constantine and Gallican infusions and Constantine and Charlemagne, all, all this imperial stuff. Okay, well, let's go look at the Ethiopians. They weren't under Charlemagne. They have yeah, the same exact exactly. elements. They're using incense, the chants. Okay, let's go to India. They weren't under Constantine. Same exact template. And that's what's, I think, so great about your book is – you're not just arguing something about the Roman right. You are you are making a theological treatise on what liturgy is, and liturgy is apostolic. It, That's right. If it was just sort of hippies making up their own stuff or what's good in our culture, you wouldn't see that the Ethiopians are worshiping in the same way as people in Ireland. Same exact outline and structure. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. The other side of it is, too, is, and this is one of the dirty little secrets that they never talk about. They say, oh, well, the first time this ever appears in the liturgy is in, you know, 240 AD, because that's the first time we have the text. Oh, no. What that means is that it existed before then. That's the first time it ever got written down. 
And this is one of the, or, or it did exist or it was written down. It's just that this is the only extant text, but it's not the type of thing that all of a sudden they're just, you know, basically they're not doing what we just did in the last 50 years, which is all of a sudden stuff just appears on the scene because some guy just made it up. That type of thing never happened liturgically, right? right? In the sense of the texts, what we see historically, that's because there was a pre-existing set of texts or a pre-existing manner of offering the liturgy that was before that for a significant amount of time. And as this, as it starts to become clear, as you start reading the fathers, that it, it all was inaugurated by the apostles. And so, as I mentioned, those certain elements were consistent for the entire history of the church until now, right? And so that's what we actually have to look at is, okay. And this is why when I first start talking about the Pope, historically, the Popes had very, they were very careful about how they actually approached these elements for two reasons. One, if they were obscure in the, in the lineage and they weren't certain, then it was the exact opposite of what it is today. Because the, today the attitude is, well, if we don't know, then we can change it. No, 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 no. First of all, that violates a first principle. When in doubt of fact, do not act. If you don't, if, if, if the bush is, is rustling and I don't know what's in it, I don't just stick a gun in there and start pulling the trigger. I got to know what I'm shooting at, right? It's the same thing in relationship to the liturgy. You have to make sure you know where this thing comes came from because you might end up finding out later, which is happening over and over and over again within the real research liturgically, is that all these modern theories are just being shown over and over again to not simply be true that in point in fact, what the tradition has always said and what the fathers have said, and the more we find the fathers, that they had already, that this stuff had already been pretty much, you know, pretty much that there was a specific development, but there was pretty much a clarity that the popes recognized. I, I don't even touch this thing. I mean, to give you an idea of it, Pius, the t uh, I was told, I'm still trying to dig up the source. I'm sure it's out there. In fact, I think I read it at one point, but I just haven't been able to find the source. But Pius XI was asked, you know, to insert St. Joseph into the canon. Now, we can discuss whether St. Joseph should be in the canon or not. That's not the question. But Pius XI's um, response, I think, was revelatory about how the popes viewed, viewed it, especially in light of the, um, the papal uh, oath that was taken for literally a millennia. And this, um, that papal oath, but that it, it reflected the mindset of Pius XI when he was asked, why don't you put St. Joseph in the canon? And he says, I can't do that. I'm only the Pope, right? There was a recognition that the Pope only had rights of preservation in relationship to certain aspects of the liturgy and not rights of determination. Yeah. And you know, when you listen to, I'm gonna, I just keep using Jungmann because people, I think if you're in the liturgy, you've probably mm. studied Jungmann. He was... Uh, I don't know. He was kind of the go-to guy before Vatican II yeah. with understanding the liturgy. And, and time has shown that many of his presuppositions are false. Uh, archaeology and texts have proved that, you know, the kind of pre-Vatican II idea of folk liturgy is completely foreign to the apostolic church. And not only is it foreign to the apostolic church, it's foreign to the book of the apocalypse because you go into the book of the apocalypse, you're in chapters four, five, and what do you see? The presbyters the priests, what are they wearing? Vestments. Vince. What are they doing? Yeah, they're exactly. swinging incense around an altar, and they're chanting. And then there's martyrs yeah. underneath the altar. So you hear people say, well, over time, as there were martyrs, people began to go to their tombs and worship. And it's like already in the time of the apostles, the celestial vision of the court of heaven. So it's not the court of Constantine, and it's not the court of Charlemagne. Exactly. It is the court of Yahweh, as you see in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. That's right. That's the exactly vision right. of the early apostles. John even writes it down for us. is extremely liturgical. It is based on right. temple rites. It is based on anointings and vessels and incense and altars. It's not an IKEA table you know, with some hippie <laughs> Jesuit, that's right. right? Talking about what Jesus means to him. It is an, it is not just, and exactly. that's, it's not just the apostolic, the, the apostolic pattern that you see from Ethiopia to Ireland is really them instituting the heavenly court of the Old Testament prophets right. and what John sees and probably many other of them saw in visions of Christ right. as the high priest in heaven which is the Eucharistic liturgy 
And that makes it an oblation exactly. and a sacrifice. So it's, it's not just that we have to do data mining in the church fathers. We can just look at the New Testament and we see it. Yes, there. exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think in the end, that's the foundation for any uh, discussion going forward, right? Um, the, the only reason I'm suggesting we go to fathers more is because all they're going to do is back up what we saw a, in Scripture. But the second part of it is, is that we're fi you, you find these little nuggets here and there, and then you realize, well, everything that the modernist enterprise has told us is not actually true. The, when I read Jungman's book, I was so irritated from A to B with this thing because, A, you could see that uh, he, he, he had a bit of an agenda. He was trying to be scholarly, but there were so many different times when I knew what he was saying was actually not true that I came to the conclusion that he's a good source if you want to know where to go look in the church's tradition to look at the information, but you can't look at him as a source of actually getting it right. I mean, on almost a, on a large percentage of things. The other thing I saw in Jungman, which is something um, I saw it first in Jungman, and then when I started doing this research, I started taking a look at because there was a, I had read somewhere where um, there were certain theologians of which Ratzinger is, was a part. Now, I don't have any proof of this. This is precisely why I did not mention this in the book. But during the 1950s, there was actually a discussion um, by a group of um, theologians. Could the Pope actually suppress the old right? And they basically unanimously came to the conclusion the Pope did not have the authority to suppress the current extant Roman right because of its apostolic lineage. And that this is what actually undergirded um, Sumorum Pontificum. The reason he basically said any priest can say this is because of the fact that there was a recognition um, that on his part that he had been part of this study and had seen the fact that no, he the Pope doesn't have the authority to suppress this right precisely because of its apostolic lineage, and this is because everything in it, all the elements that would are necessary for. Um, a liturgy to be apostolic were present. And because there was a general consensus that if a priest is ordained in a specific rite, then he actually had the right to say the rite that came from that lineage, that apostolic lineage. And so when I started to do the research to find out, okay, which theologians were talking about this? Who was talking about it? Where did, they, did they write anything about it? I went to, to the Diocese of Denver's seminary. They have a phenomenally good library there because it's, it's, it, it's been around for over 100 years, and, it's, and they spent a lot of time maintaining that library financially, you know, keeping, all the, keeping it up to rent. So I was, actually had a chance to research the, um, the go to the main liturgical periodicals that were in place during the 1940s and 50s, and as I read that article after article after article through that whole segment, that whole time frame, I realized these people were already off the rails even then. And this, and the way I looked at it, the reason I said I I realized that is because, and this is where Jungman was already getting him stuff from all that discussion. These guys, there there was virtually not a single article that did anything about going and looking at the fathers and how they discussed how the liturgy was done. It was literally just, literally stuff that was being made up at the time, a lot of it. And so that's when I realized that, well, Jungman was just a reflection of the time where these guys, this was all in the air. There was all this discussion. And it's just like you said, it was the kind of this attitude that, oh, well, we can just kind of make it up as we go along. Or, and there was also kind of an attitude of, and this is, gets to another principle, which we can talk about. But it gets to this attitude is, is if it's not necessary for the absolute validity of the sacrament, then you can sweep it aside and do whatever you please with this thing and make, and make the liturgy do whatever you want. There was no sense whatsoever of the principle of longevity, which I d d dedicate an entire chapter to in this book. The principle of longevity says the longer something's in the liturgy, the more it's the will of God. It be, it, it's there. And so as a result of that, the fact that this thing had been, I mean, we have certitude from the time of Gregor the Great, but even before then, we know that this liturgy didn't come out of a vacuum by the time it gets to Gregor the Great. All he is ultimately doing is codifying what was already there, right? And so this thing had pre-existed that. And so there, the elements in the liturgy had been around for a minimum of 1400, 
possibly in some cases 1800 years, in many cases all the way back to the apostles. This meant it was clearly the positive will of God. It's not a toleration. He's not going to tolerate it for that long when things bad get into the liturgy. And this was the whole real story behind uh, Pius V. Once things start to go awry, God sends a pope who cleans the house and gets it straightened back out. And so he'll tolerate it for a certain amount of time in the liturgy, but eventually he, God will get it straightened out in the liturgy. And so if something's been in the liturgy that long, it's the positive will of God that it's there. So for the people watching who aren't liturgy scholars, can you walk us through what are the essential apostolic principles, parts of the Eucharistic liturgy, the Holy Mass? So we know, um, if you actually look at how Christ actually offered um, it, even in Scripture, so we know the words of consecration from what Christ said, um, and uh, also from what St. Paul and has said as well. So we know what the actual uh, words of consecration are. Those are from divine tradition. We also know that the, offertory, that the necessity of having an offertory, a slaying of the victim, that's the, the canon, and then also the communion, is right there in Christ's first supper. So we know that Christ is confirming those three elements which came, which God introduced in the Old Testament into the Jews, which became an integral part of all, all sacrifices were in fact uh, um, offered. And that Christ confirms those and he said, do this in commemoration of me. And that includes all those three elements. We see those three elements are common to all of the um, rituals that can trace themselves back to an apostle so all the eastern rites have it all the uh the the um the uh uh the, obviously the roman rite has it and so those three elements are considered to be of divino um, and divino apostolic tradition some of the stuff that's contained within those would actually be part of the uh, the apostolic tradition that the apostles when they wrote the rites and inaugurated them there would be certain elements as I just mentioned, Christ commanded the apostles, so we know it's divino apostolic tradition that each um, rite has a preface. Obviously, the prefaces have been amplified and Father, been I, I added to. I apologize for interrupting, but can you explain what the preface yeah. is for the audience? Yeah, so the preface is the part that actually begins with the... Um, so there's the offertory that actually begins... The, this is where I offer Actually, the... Yeah, you know, let's we say God offered to you. Let's, let's go. Let's go. Kind of fifth grade yeah. here. So, so what is the offertory? Okay. What is the preface? What is the canon? What is the communion? That's you said. It's yes. the integral element of offering a sacrifice. Sacrifice, right? So the first, the um, the offertory is when you take some gift or uh, oblata is a technical term. The same thing, and you're offering it to God. And when you offer it to Him, so you know, I offer to God the Father. I offer to you this unblemished host, right? So that's the first thing that's offered. Once that offertory has been done, that particular thing, the bread and the wine that has been offered, are now considered to be. Uh, segmented out from profane use. From that point on, they cannot be, they have to be. That's why if a, if a priest starts the offertory and dies, another priest has to actually come and complete the Mass because these things have now been set aside for specifically for uh, the worship of God. Okay, so that's, that's in the offertory. So that offertory has to be you offer up the thing to God. Um, then there's a preface which then begins the transition from the offertory to the actual canon of the Mass. And the canon of the Mass are the four prayers before the actual consecration and the four prayers after and uh, in the Roman Rite. And those, um, so the canon of the Mass comprises all of that. It also includes the words of consecration, which are right in the middle. So that's the, um, so it's those, it's in that, it's, it's those prayers before and after. The canon of the Mass is historically what they call the slaying of the victim because um, it's the beginning of it. It's the actual t uh, talking about the sacrificial part. Then when you get to it, you actually split the body and blood of Christ sacramentally. That is, sacramentally you uh, consecrate his body and the sacrament you consecrate his blood. And so they're sacramentally split. And that's how it actually participates atemporally in an unbloody manner in the Calvary sacrifice. Then there always there always has to be a consuming of the victim, and that's um, and you even see this in the um, and even when Christ so at the at the um, in the Garden of Olives he actually 
in the garden, he says, not my will, but thine be done. That's the offertory. Then there is the slaying of the victim. That's the passion. And then right towards the end, because he had completed everything necessary to merit all our healing, all our perfections, and everything that was necessary, he said, consummatumus, it's completed, or mm. it's con uh, con uh, consummated. And so there has to be a consuming of the victim. And part of that is to, uh, in order to complete the sacrifice, part of it also to make sure that that element of the liturgy does not in any way go to profane use. There's no sacrilege that's occurred in relationship to, because it's been set aside for God, it's been used to worship him, and therefore it, it's sacred. So that's kind of the basic gist. Originally, if you read the document um, from uh, the Council of Trent, it said the Pope can make changes, and the, usually the term is oxygentalia, the accidentals, um, in relationship to the liturgy. They can make changes to those except for those things that pertain to the substance of the sacraments. But later theologians started unpacking and starting saying, well, that phrase from the Council of Trent, even though a majority of theologians initially interpreted that mean he can't change the words of consecration, Later, they began to realize, no, actually, he can't even change, um, he can't make, he can't change the essential elements even of the ritualistic sacrifice, or the sacramental sacrifices occurs with a valid consecration. But the ritual sacrifice is that which extends through the whole of the Mass, beginning from the offertory to the communion of the priest. Right. And so that's the sacramental sacrifice. And they say, no, he can't even change the essential elements of those. Now, he could make some additions and changes, which we obviously saw because there were saints added to the canon as they died. But at a certain point, even that became fixed until um, 1962 when um, John the 23rd put St. Joseph in the canon. But that those things, and even the offertories, there have been some minor changes that were made in the offertories historically. There were also a couple of liturgical gestures that were added. So for example, the major elevation at Mass originally wasn't done. It was actually done in order to combat a heresy. So those would be accidental things that were added along the way, but those essential things uh, remained from the time of the apostles until now, which they inaugurated. The content of those elements and the elements themselves remained unchanged except for what minor additions were done over historically. Yes. So I think if, if for people out there watching and you're having this discussion at your Thanksgiving table, uh, you can say, well, all the apostles understood the Eucharist as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. And right. so the Eucharist is the Passover sacrifice of the New Covenant. And everything Father Ripperger just explained, first you set the Lamb aside. Like, let's just look at Exodus. Right. You set the Lamb right. aside. That's That would be what, Father, the offertory, right? Offertory, right. Yeah. Then you kill the Lamb. That's right. And then you That's right. The and the principal way that you do it is by separating the uh, the blood from the lamb, basically. Right, which is exactly how God told Moses the people had to do it. And then right. you eat the lamb. Lamb. Right. That's so right. Everything you just said about the integral elements of sacrifice, you can literally just point to Exodus at the Passover lamb and say, everything God commanded about the Passover lamb applies to the new covenant because Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's correct. And that's actually why I say in the book, those essential elements, the Pope, he could make minor changes here and there to certain parts of it, but he is not, it, it's outside the authority of the Pope to promulgate a right A that would, wouldn't have any words of consecration. But right. that, the other side of it would, um, he's not, it doesn't have the authority to promulgate a right that wouldn't have a proper offertory, for example. That's not within his authority to actually do. And so this is something in which, um, or that just didn't have the communion of the priest, for example, because the communion of the faithful is the completion of their sacrifice, which they're offering in union with the priest, right? So even their communion is still seen within the context of that, that threefold structure. But he would not have the authority to, 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 promulgate a right that didn't have those. And so the point of my book is to show that, look, if you actually look at it, the divine, he also couldn't put something that's contrary to the natural law or the divine positive law in there. You know, he couldn't have us worshiping statues, for example, or or certain kinds of things in the, in the ritual. So those things, he does not have the authority to do. He also doesn't have, in addition to, he doesn't have the authority to insert those but he also doesn't have the authority to promulgate rights that are that do not actually have those elements that came from the apostles and perdured even to this day. And right. based on the principle of longevity, 
based on the principle of longevity and also the papal oath, which kind of gives an indicator of how that principle is to, is to be understood, which is that the um, uh, that if something has gotten in the liturgy and it's been there for 1400 years, then it was generally considered the Pope did not have the authority to change that element. He could maybe add something minor to it or what have you, but he did not have the authority to change that element because it was the positive will of God that that element, as it had been drafted at the time and perdured for 1400 years, was to be there. Perfectly said. So if a pope were to say, oh, if you're going to have Eucharistic adoration, there's this new rite, you skip the offertory, you say the words of consecration, and the priest doesn't receive communion, and he puts it in the monstrance, that right there, a pope cannot do, because it's not That's correct. in and, conformity with the sacrifice of the Eucharistic liturgy. Yes. In fact, in the past, as you know, they were so strict about that, that if you ran out of hosts, you were strictly forbidden to consecrate more hosts if if you hadn't gone basically through the whole rite of the Mass. This is one of the reasons why if the uh, if you discover that there are hosts sitting off the corporal, because the priest actually has the intention of consecrating what's on the corporal, if you discover that these hosts were off uh, off the corporal during the actual offertory and that you didn't actually offer them up, you either have to go back and do the offertory to re-offer them before you do the consecration, or you have to leave them unconsecrated because they have not undergone the proper setting aside that is required right. for that process. Perfect, yeah. See, and this, again, I think a lot of people just think, well, Mass is the consecration and me receiving communion. But the, exactly. Catholic, the Catholic theology of, of the Eucharistic liturgy is very deep. And it's yes, east to west. exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's so, exactly right. So this is this is a little bit of a controversial question, and I'll ask it in a delicate way. But one of the greatest criticisms of the Mass, the Novus Ordo Mass, instituted uh, in 1969 or promulgated in 1969, uh, came to the to the chapels and churches of the world in 1970. That offertory, if you put it side by side with the offertory of the 62 Missal. It, it's right. different, right? It one is very is, different. One is, yeah. one is offering the whole. So the offertory is when they get the bread and the the water and the wine on the altar. There are some about is it seven prayers in the Roman offertory thereabouts? Yeah, that's right. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they're just I've never like, even though I've said them a thousand times, I've never. They're just like hammers. Yet. You know, the offertory prayers are just like, yeah. and and the and at the end, you know, like they offer to the Trinity. There's the invoke, invoking of the Holy Spirit on, and it's so powerful. And then you get over to the Novus Ordo, and it's like, you know, work of human hands. You know, they will become for us. It's been so long since I've been. And everybody says, "Blessed be God forever." Right. It's kind of just sort of yeah. like statements, whereas the traditional offertory is invoking the third person, the Trinity, offering to the Trinity. I mean, there's just so much going on right. theologically. I mean, that anyone who goes to the traditional mass, the Novus Ordo Mass, that is one of the most glaring discrepancies between the two rites. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the. I actually, it's one of the reasons why I don't think they're actually the same rite, which is kind of interesting because even now the the current Holy Father is saying that you know this is. They're not, they're not the same, right? Or I, at least I should say the people out of the Vatican are saying that. And then I actually wrote a book, uh, an article one time. This was like 20-some years ago. Oh, no, it's hard to take that. It was right when Sumorum Pontificum came out. And I said, what is a right? And I said, well, right is determined by the prayers of the offertory, the canon, and the communion of the priest. And it's. I think that you can, I think, and I understand why Benedict did this. He didn't want to say that the old rite and the new rite were separate rites because then you have the, a phenomenon, a canonical problem, where you have, to, in order for a, a new rite priest to say the old rite, he would actually have to get faculties because of the way canon law is structured because they're different rites. So I would have just said, well, canonically, they're in the same rite, but liturgically, I think it's almost impossible to argue that they're the same rite liturgically, precisely because those canons are those offertories are that different. I think that's one of the beauty of the second video of the Mass of the Ages where they show all the changes, is they show, no, these are very different. And so I think that it's easily argued that they're different rites. 
but that offertory question was actually something that even Benedict weighed in on, not heavily, but he himself had made the observation that the uh, the new right offertory did need reform and I think that the real question became in the minds of the theologians um, now in one sense they say that just uh, just by taking the, the oblata and placing them on the altar is a form of offertory and I'm like well okay if you want to argue that but then the problem becomes well, then what about these other hosts that are not sitting on the corporal, or if I just put it on the corporal, right. but then later I take it off? I mean, it's not until the prayers are said that is the real issue, because right. it's the prayer it's the prayer that tells us what this, the liturgical action yeah. actually means, right? Yeah, I mean, if you put some, just saying putting something on the altar sets it aside as an oblation, I mean, that's like saying, you know, you set vases of flowers on there that they're set, it's different. There has to be the action, the prayer of the priest over the element. Father, do you mind if I read? I just want to read one of the sure. prayers from the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, this is the, sure. the, the last prayer in the traditional uh, Roman Rite Offertory. And, and listen, this is an English translation I'm doing, Father Lassance. Receive, O Holy Trinity, this oblation offered up by us to thee in memory of the passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in honor of the Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, of blessed John the Baptist, of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and these and all thy saints, that it may be available to their honor and to their salvation, and they may, whose memory we celebrate on earth, vouchsafe to intercede for us in heaven through the same Christ our Lord. I mean, that's a very powerful prayer. It's at the very end, right before the priest says, Brethren, pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to Almighty God. Why would anyone in their right mind take this out of the Mass? <laughs> hey, you were the one who just said it. I don't know if they were in their right minds. No, right. I, I, I mean, I think that it, I think it really boiled down to, I mean, I mentioned this in, an, in another conference, but I think that what's happened is during the 40s and 50s, they went through a period of elation where they were just like, everything is so wonderful. And, this is, and they kind of got caught up in the enthusiasm of it, and then they got swept away, and now they just started just they couldn't see the things for what they really are and they got kind of sucked into um, just wanting to change absolutely everything. Um, you know, I think it's, in the book I make the observation that the distinction between a meal and a mass is precisely the offertory. If you don't have an offertory, then it's just slaying something and eating it. Whereas if it's, even if it's done in a religious context, whereas if it's, it's precisely the offertory that basically sets aside the slaying of the victim and the communion or the consuming of the thing. It precisely is what determines what those two become. And I think this is one of the um, reasons why Benedict himself said it, this thing, it, it does need reform. And I think given enough time, um, he might have actually done it because there were certain changes that he made that I think were beneficial even to the new right. Um, and I think that those changes could have been done. But I, my basic point in all of this, and it actually gets even to the question of suppression of right, can the Pope suppress a right? Well, okay. Historically, there have been two Popes. Um, in, in my research, I could not find any other Pope that had suppressed a right. Um, but the, the two Popes were Gregory the Great and Pius V. And Gregory the Great suppressed a right precisely because it was heretical, right? There was heretical elements, and he said, that's it, it's out. But what he ended up codifying was precisely this apostolic lineage. When you get to Pius V, he sets the cutoff date for the rituals he's going he's gonna, to um, uh, suppress to 200 years. Now, some people say that's just because he wanted to be able to preserve the Dominican rite. But I think that's, the, I mean, okay, that might have been some of his psychological motive, but I think that's a bit unfair, right? Because the Dominican rite, its elements do contain those things that all go back all the way to the, um, to that can trace itself back to the apostolic lineage, right? So it has all those elements that are necessary. It's after, it's about 200 years before Pius V that you start to see this proliferation of rites, this proliferation of stuff being added to the rite that doesn't have any apostolic lineage. And that's why he ends up putting out quo primum. So he put, he repromulgates, basically he codifies the mass, the same mass that Gregory the Great did, but obviously with, uh, 
those elements that had undergone slow, very minor organic development, plus the can all the saints that had been canonized, etc. He recodifies that, and it's at that point that he says that any priest can say this. Now, uh, I have gone on record saying that, quote, primum by its nature, in my own opinion, was not promulgated in an infallible mode. What's infallible is what undergirds it. It's the principles that undergird it. The reason Pius V is saying any mass can say this in perpetuity, any priest can say this in perpetuity, is precisely because it is the ritual that connects through the apostolic lineage all the way back to the apostles. And that, it, the fact that it has that apostolic lineage is precisely what gives the priest the right to do this. So, and that's why he says, you know, no bishop or can tell you you can't say that is precisely because you're actually offering the mass that stands all the way back in its essential elements or in its elements but all the way back to in its liturgical elements back to the apostles and so this is uh this is one of the reasons why i tell people well quote premium wasn't infallible in its pro mode of promulgation but the principles that undergird it i would argue are infallible and that's why I would say that a pope, can the pope suppress a right? Yeah, he can, but only when it lacks elements that pertain to the apostolic lineage. And that would be in, you know, in some of its essential elements. And so I would say there are certain rights he can suppress, but I, and, and that's why I would agree with Cardinal Burke and with um, Pope Athanasius Snyder. I don't think a pope had, and I would agree then also with Benedict, even in how he understands Samorum Pontificum and that whole discussion they had before him, I don't think that the Pope has the authority to suppress the Roman rite that has come to us from the time of Gregory the Great. I don't think he has that authority. That's my own personal opinion, but I think it can easily be backed up by the argumentation. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think a Pope can suppress the traditional, not just the traditional Latin Mass, the traditional Roman rite, because it is right. apostolic. Yes. It's apostolic. And if yes, you say, well, I, a Pope can do anything yeah. as the keys, you have to ask yourself, well, can the Pope remove Luke's gospel from the New Testament? Does his power of the keys, if he can do anything, exactly, it's kind of a nominalist understanding of papal power. The keys are given for a telos, a teleology, which is to preserve the deposit of faith for the salvation of souls. That's right. That's the binding and loosing of keys. It's not to just do whatever he wants to do. That's a nominalist or a Muslim understanding of volition. Right. Yeah. And it's not even the church's understanding, obviously, no. because even the Council of Trent restricts him. And then also popes throughout the course of time restrict him. Even the papal oath was considered to be introducing a restriction that he had to keep the rituals intact as he had received them. So there Correct. was a recognition that there was a recognition that the, the Pope had, and this is why I end up parsing it out in the book, actually in relationship to the liturgy, his authority stands threefold. The first is, there are certain elements over which he has no authority to change. Be, his authority is the right of preserving those elements. It's his duty and obligation to preserve them. Then there's those which he would have rights of determination, um, but which uh, are, are purely accidental, right? They would, we're not talking about any of the essential elements. And obviously this would mean that he would make, not make, be able to make any changes that would go contrary to the principle of apostolicity, that is, it came from the apostles, or the principle of longevity. Because if something's been in the liturgy for 1,400 years, you basically run the risk of going against the positive will of God by removing or changing that element. Then there is those which... Um, the element has been determined by apostolicity or longevity, but to which minor additions can be made. So he can preserve, there are certain things he has an obligation he cannot change, he can preserve. There are certain things that he has to preserve, there are essential elements, but he can make minor changes. And then there's those that he can make changes to, uh, principally because they're purely accidental, like addition of new saints to the, to, uh, to the calendar or things of this sort. That would be what he could, he could um, add to. Um, but even those, I would argue, he should be making sure that he's following these principles that the church has always used in determining what should be in the liturgy and not just put whatever he feels like it. He has to be very careful to make sure it lines out with the way the church has always uh, understood uh, how that is to be done, but also the principles that govern it. Yeah. Okay, so a closing question here. This is perhaps what's going on in some lay people mind as they're listening. Like, look, Father, 
to me, Mass is just, is the consecration valid? And when I receive communion, is it really Jesus? So what does it really matter about offertories and prefaces and all mm. that? Uh, how would you answer that question? And then the second part of the question is, why would you encourage people to attend the traditional Latin Mass? Those are probably the same question, but go ahead. Um. Yeah, actually, they kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> as for as to the second one, I'll answer it just very quickly. Okay. I'll just use uh, Cardinal Burke's words. He says, because it's a most beautiful expression of the of Catholic liturgy, of, of divine worship. Right. Um, so that's, that's how I would say it. Um, but as far as to the first question, one of the principles I kind of discuss in this book is per begets what it signifies. So what you ask for is what you're going to get. And we know that the mass is the, one of, is the principal conduit through which grace comes into the world. And so what we're asking for, what is in the liturgy, the prayers, how they're structured, the holiness of them, the sacrality of them, how we approach God, all the actions that we do in relationship to him, all of those are going to determine the graces that are going to flow to us. And so we want to make sure that those are maximized and not just take on, not just approach this like a liturgical minimalism, which is, well, it's valid and I get my communion. Because in that particular case, we're, we're ignoring some of the most important aspects of it. I'm not denying that receiving communion and the consecration obviously are essential elements and key, but we're talking about the fact that there are other aspects to this which are gonna have a direct impact on the graces that we received, we receive based upon what we pray for. And so this is what I think is, you know, we, for example, I'll give the example. We stopped praying for the Pope every, uh, the, we, the Bunini removed the collect for the Pope during, um, uh, during Lent. And we used to pray for the Pope every single day during Lent. He was there, there was a commemoration, except for on major feast days. You'd commemorate praying for the Pope. Then we stopped praying for him, and then we wonder why strange things start happening, right? It's because we're not receiving the graces. This is yeah. the point is, is that this is why we can't approach the liturgy in a minimalist kind of mindset. Right. Can you imagine, Father, if I approached my marriage with a minimalist mindset? Yeah, exactly. How would that work? Oh, out? And my question. Yeah, or just yeah. Oh, even it's your anniversary. What do you want to do? Oh, I, I, let's go out to eat, and then get in the car, and she gets all dressed up, and I take her to McDonald's, and I'm like, "What? Yes, like this is That's going right. out to eat. It's what you said." Hey, has Joy it's been valid. complaining about that recently? Yeah, I kind of got in trouble for that McDonald's. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, uh, no. it's the same yeah. thing. Like, you know, uh, you know, Father Dave Nix says, "Well, people say." Well, it's valid, so I'm going. It's like, well, it's like saying, like, how's your marriage going? It's valid. Is yeah, our relationship exactly. with God, who is our bridegroom, is it just doing the bare minimal and just checking the box? It's valid. That yeah. is the mass is objective adoration of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Receiving exactly. communion is an added benefit, but it is not an integral part of the lady receiving communion to the mass. The That's Mass right. is the offering of Jesus Christ our Lord to the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And our participation That's in it right. makes it makes us participants in perfect worship, Trinitarian action. So th this whole idea that, well, I just go there, it's a consecration, I receive my communion, and that's that on Sunday, is not a Catholic understanding of Mass. No. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always considered much more than that. Yep. This is fascinating. People need, you need to read the book. Here it is. I'm going to make it bigger so people can see it. There the we Limits go. of Papal Authority Over the Liturgy, Father Chad Ripperger. I enjoyed reading it. I wish it were longer. If you want to get into why does all of this matter? A lot of people are like, ah, oh, it just seems like people are obsessed with Latin or they're Pharisees or they like rules. Right. I think if you get this book by Father Ripperger and you read it, you'll realize that we are entering into an apostolic paradigm, which will make us love God more, hope in God more and believe in God more. And it will create saints, right. and then the saints will sanctify the world, and we can get back to a Christian culture. If we can do that before Christ returns. Right. The, grace flows from the altar. And if we tinker with that, we are inhibiting grace. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's it. 
Well, Father, will you um, will you pray for us and say a blessing? Yes, I sure will. Benedicto de omnipotentis, patris et fili, et spiritus et super te, et maniat semper. Amen. All right, Father, thank you. The, okay. the link to the book, everyone, is below this video. They've all the moderators have been also giving the link during the show. It will remain up there. You can also get it at Amazon, but I recommend that you get it directly through Father's site. He'll get more of the royalty that way. Authors always love that. So um, that'll help support his work and his exorcism and yeah. his teaching and his catechesis, all those things. So uh, please get a copy of the book. I want I want the Dr. Taylor Marshall podcast group to buy at least 5,000 copies. So that's your homework. Go get the book. Make it a Christmas gift. Buy two. Give it to someone else. <laughs> there you go. All right, Father, thanks for being with us, everybody. Please like this video. Please subscribe. Hit the notification bell. And remember, our Lord Jesus Christ is you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Godspeed. Father Ripperger, thank you for being a guest. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much.